This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. xCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers, and that means you, my friend. The xCloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation, and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code BETA, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwildcutters.com forward slash energy. X. This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Willing Gas Startups podcast. Man, I was just talking about, we've been doing this thing for a long time, getting into it. So glad to have a new friend, Stephen Fipke, Inflow Control here with me in the studio. Stephen, welcome. Thanks, glad to be here. Uh, big fan. Recently discovered you guys though, mostly around the Fuse event that you hosted here recently, which uh, opened my eyes to the whole space that you guys are working in. <laughs> I was glad to be uh, able to participate in that. Well, thanks for coming out, man. Well, walk us through really quickly, kind of high level. What is it that, that Inflow does? And then we'll kind of dive into your backstory. Sure, sure. We're uh, kind of a cross between an oil field service company and a technology company in the sense that uh, the company's headquarters in, in Norway, in a little fishing village on the south coast of Norway, um, by three founders. We developed a really cool way to manage your reservoir autonomously. We call it the autonomous inflow control device, right? Just like a little valve you can put down in your reservoir. And if you're producing oil, it's wide open. And if, you're, if water or gas starts to break through, it autonomously senses that fluid viscosity and starts to restrict that flow. So we're you know, about 10 years old at this point, but still very much you know, startup growth phase. Um, myself, I'm the only employee here in the United States of America. Uh, but I love it because it's a blank slate for me to find opportunities to utilize this technology for different types of assets and reservoirs. So what is the what is the use case? Is this something that it makes sense to install in every well? Is there certain no, not, conditions? And not then, every and then, well, but yeah, there are certainly conditions. You, you We have to do a lot of background work before we decide if it's a suitable application, okay. you know, so that's why we have a team of 10 reservoir engineers on staff. Most of them in Norway, they collect operator data, do a wellbore simulation and say, yeah, okay, this looks great for your reservoir or no, uh, we need to try something else, something different. But um, the best case scenario is like a water flood where you've got a lot of water breakthrough problems mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, a new oil field with uh, high water cut due to a strong aquifer drive where water just breaks through everywhere yeah. or just in one area and you want to be able to control that to get more oil out of that reservoir more quickly 
Um, but here in Texas, I actually have four wells in the ground now with just the oldest of the oldest brown fields. Okay. This uh, Greta Frio trend is just like an hour south of here near Victoria. And another field that's just on the south side of Houston. We have uh, actually five wells in Texas where the oil was depleted in the 1970s. You know, old Exxon fields. It blew down the gas cap in the 90s to get that out of the ground. And the Gulf of Mexico has gradually like recharged the reservoir hydrodynamically. So where there's actually just a thin layer of oil at the top that's okay. left. There's a few operators, none of the majors are interested in this, but they'll go in and buy up this acreage and try to find that little cream that's left in the top of the reservoir by drilling a well very close to the top of the structure. Mm -hmm. The danger is if you're anywhere near that water, it's a water well, okay. right? So these valves have been shown to be able to control that water. So you don't, you're not making 10,000 barrels of water a day. You're making 2,000 barrels of water a day, yep. but also keeping the oil production up for longer. So how does it? So how does it actually work? So it detects. We've got some breakthrough. the The water cut has changed drastically. What happens next? Okay, so each little valve, you kind of envisualize a multi stage frack. We've got packers and frack sleeves. Okay. Before plug and perf and cemented liners, it was mostly packers and frack sleeves, swellable packers, and uh, but instead of a frack sleeve, you've got a little set of a little section of screen with an autonomous inflow control valve in there, right? So the valve has two main flow paths. One, which can produce, you know, 100 barrels of oil per day if it's open, and then a little siphon tube off the side, call it the pilot flow. That tube is constantly sampling the viscosity and density of what's coming from the reservoir into the wellbore. So it's viscosity sensitive. And if it's, you know, anything above one centipoise oil, so pretty light oils will keep the valve completely open. But if water breaks through in that compartment of the well, because we've got multiple valves and multiple compartments, the valve says, okay, obviously the viscosity has dropped because there's water or gas coming in here and I need to start choking it back. And it does this without cables, without control lines, without batteries. It's just simple fluid mechanics. So how... <laughs> yeah, I didn't tell you how it works. <laughs> so is that proprietary or... Yeah, we have patents and... Okay. And, well, yeah, I mean... The boss. Well, give, give me like without telling me the sauce. How does it? Does it just? Is it shutting, shutting it down? Is it just choking it in a way? Right. Is it? There's, it's all public. It's all okay. well patented and protected. Okay. You can go on the website and there's YouTube videos. We have a YouTube channel that explains this how it works in depth. Gotta put those in Collab Pro. A lecture series. They're in. They're in. Okay. Yeah, I signed right. up last week. Yeah. Um. So, in layman's terms, when that pilot flow, it has two flow elements, right? A laminar flow element, which is a long, thin tube. By nature, any flow through that long, thin tube will be laminar. Laminar flow, uh, the pressure drop for laminar flow is typically a function of viscosity. Then after it goes through that long, thin tube, it comes back into the valve and exits the valve into the tubing or the production liner through what we call a turbulent flow element. Now, turbulent flow elements, the equation for turbulent pressure drop is a function of density. So we can fine-tune those the laminar pressure drop and the, dent and the turbulent pressure drop to create enough of a difference between the two to create a back pressure under a piston. And the piston, once it's, if it sees any back pressure underneath it, it will move up into the closed position and start choking the well. So it's not on off, it doesn't immediately close at the first drop of water gas, but as the water cut gradually increases, 
that pressure that pushes the piston up to close the valve gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it's 100% watered out and then it's up in its like mostly closed position. So that's how we can control the well without any wires or gadgets or gizmos down there, just fluid mechanics. So then maybe this is a little, little educational, um, but assuming, so this whole process happens, right? It essentially chokes it down. How do we, how do we get it back to where, to where it was? Mm-hmm. Is it, I mean, are we having to go in and uh, we have, people always ask if you need a sliding sleeve to be able to have like a manual default close off position. Mm-hmm. And no, we've never had to do that, Jake. And it's because even if the valve goes into its closed position, it's just, it's a dynamic uh, positioning of that piston, right? If there's water there, it'll stay up in its choking position. But if oil comes back for whatever reason, you shut the well in for a week and things move around in the reservoir, you get some oil concentration back, some oil saturation. And then, well, that pilot flow never closed. That pilot flow is always sampling the reservoir, right? Mm-hmm. So if you do get oil to return to that part of the well that you're controlling with the autonomous inflow control valve, AICV, then it'll sense oil viscosity again and open back up. Okay. So... This is more just a reservoir engineering question. Outside of just shutting in and allowing the, I guess, the oil density to to kind of grow, how, how do you deal with those situations where you just have a massive amount of water all of a sudden take over? Yeah, it'll choke that well if it's just yeah. if it's all coming. If it's like, just, what, like what are the other solutions outside yeah. of that? Like pa- past the past the the valve. Yeah, that's a very pertinent question because if you have a little bit of water breaking through at the heel, choke that back, you get more oil from the toe in a horizontal well, right? Yeah. Stands to reason. But if it's all oil everywhere, all at once, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, you've got a bigger problem. And that has happened, right? You've drilled wells straight into the water and it's like, you'll never. Well, we did that on a well for a small operator. I'm not going to name names, but it was a great project where they drilled uh, in, uh, south of Victoria here in Texas. It's the old Greta Frio trend. Um, and they drilled a screen well. They've been doing this for maybe five or 10 years. It's the old Frostwood business model, if you will, of buying up this depleted reservoir and trying to drill wells at the top and just rip on it with a big ESP and try to get whatever you get, right? Yeah. It's hit or miss. You know, four out of 10 assets are economic, but you, you gotta, there's money to be made there. So what this company did was they drilled a horizontal well with screens and just regular sand screens because it's an unconsolidated formation it will produce sands so they put the screens in one well and on the same pad they put aicv autonomous devices and a well that's right beside it side by side comparison mm-hmm. one of the very few that exist in the world unfortunately <laughs> they were both in the water right so they switched on this screen well uh you know a 2500 foot long lateral you know they had 40 or 50 joints of screens in this well 5000 barrels of water and no oil. This is despite having drilled like a vertical um, delineation well that showed good oil saturation in yeah. this part of the rock. So they're optimistic. They found a good spot to drill. Like, uh-oh, <laughs> this isn't good. <laughs> then, well, we'll switch on this AICV well beside it and see what happens there. Well, wasn't great. It wasn't anything to write home about. But that well has been online now for about three years. It only ever makes about 2,000 barrels of water per day. But guess what? It's been hanging in there at 60 or 70 barrels of oil per day. Steady, flatline, no good decline. Oil. That's yeah, good oil. It's sellable oil, right? Yeah. Probably this company's only commercial cash flow at this point. In time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's stayed that way. And, you know, 
I still am really good friends with the in reservoir engineer for that company. And he's like, this is an oil finder. Uh, you're not wrong. It's not the real premise of what, how we design these wells, just to find whatever residual oil saturation is down there. But in this case, that's what it's doing. That's exciting. So how did, okay, give me a little more about your background. Let's go to more background of, of the company. Like, I'm curious, is this the only thing you guys do or do you guys do other things? Uh, how did this kind of come about? But let's go more into your background. Sure. You get a little bit of an accident here. I'm going to assume you're probably from Calgary. Ah, very oh. good. Yeah. Wow. Edmonton. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah a little <laughs> bit broader. Uh, you mentioned you've been on Goshi's, uh podcast. Shout out to Justin. Love you, dude. Yep, Justin um, rocks. Yeah, so give me a little more background about you. Sure. Uh, graduated uh, petroleum engineering in 2000, I guess. Uh, yeah, so... Really dating yourself there? A while ago, yeah. Should have said that. <laughs> but I tell my friends I've been in oil and gas since I was five years old. Um, child labor? Child labor, yeah. yeah. So my dad was always in the industry. A rig hand straight out of high school. Yeah. Uh, he was more technical, though, a smart guy. Um, but he worked for Amaretta Hess when I was a kid, right? So ever since I was five years old, I'd go out and check the gas wells in the Wilson Creek oil field with him. And grew up with the smell of gas condensate all around and riding my bicycle around the it's out in the country, right? We didn't have paved roads, you know. Uh, so we'd go to the plant and ride around the cement tracks on our bicycle because it was smoother, that kind of thing, right? Uh, so, yeah, then I, uh, he started up a couple of companies after that. A little bit of an entrepreneur. He started up a, a pump jack optimization company and then a plunger lift company and then finished his career consulting as a fracker, you know, wells company man did that for probably 15 years so when it came time for me to go to engineering a lot of my buddies were going into civil and he said no son no son of mine is going to be a civil engineer <laughs> you shall apply to the petroleum engineering program and, and thank you dad yeah you helped me a lot there because it's been a great career unfortunately when i graduated in 2000 it was kind of a downturn eh? i don't know the canadian market's a bit more sensitive than the u.s market in the sense that the oil prices for heavy oil are discounted from west texas intermediate so when we get a downturn it bites harder yeah in calgary and uh you know the guys who graduated from petroleum engineering the year prior 1999 <laughs> they were uh bartending still because they couldn't find oil and gas jobs yeah or they're out in the field you know drilling and stuff but i got lucky it wasn't my plan a but uh i had done an internship with halliburton Actually, it was Sperry. Before Sperry was Halliburton. Okay. So I had done MWD in the field. You know, uh, they didn't usually hire. I was a, a co-op student, an intern, if you will, with, with Sperry. Um, they created a new lower pay grade for guys like me who were still students <laughs> and sent us all over. I would drive thousands of kilometers between jobs from northeast British Columbia down to southeast Saskatchewan. You know, and just MWDing, me measurement while drilling for those who don't know it. And that's, you know, dirty rig work for the most part. Once you get your stuff set up, you're just sitting there taking surveys, steering the wells for the directional drillers. So I had this background in directional drilling, which was nice because when I got out of school, I was qualified for this weird little mini PSL. Halliburton calls them product service lines, PSLs, called multilaterals. And so I, I don't know what this is, but hey, it's a job. Signed on with them, and turns out this little team of like six guys in NISQ, Canada, shout out to NISQ, uh, was running the entire global product line for multilateral junctions. 
you know, doing wells with multiple legs off of them, you know, one vertical hole and then do, you know, stacked multilaterals and different layers of the reservoir or drill two different directions like this uh, or, you know, pitchfork, crossfit. There's a bunch of different multilateral well architecture. So I got to do that um, and learned really fast developing new technologies. It was still kind of the wild, wild west for multilaterals. We were building stuff in the workshop testing it out and then running it in the field immediately <laughs> no vetting of anything let's just go try this in someone's well which was a lot of fun um and that led me after a few projects in the middle east i spent a lot of time in saudi in those days uh, a little bit of time in south america and then one of the hot spots was venezuela and venezuela was blowing and going in the early 2000s right you know you know, Hugo Chavez was already the president, but he was still playing ball. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so I started working with those guys a lot more to get this new technology deployed to do these multilateral junctions a little bit better because they're notoriously risky, right? You can run into heavy duty fishing operations really quickly when you do a multilateral junction and something, the littlest thing goes wrong. You're now going to spend weeks fishing this stuff out of the hole. So I was helping those guys out, and that led me to a full-time position down there in 2004. Okay. So I moved to Venezuela as a 26-year-old guy well, How's from that? Canada. Uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like paradise found, right? Yeah. Like going from the Canadian winters to a tropical paradise with, uh, you know, I can't say beautiful ladies, but I married a Venezuelan lady, so I can say that, I guess. Um, and then, you know. 25 cents for a beer, two bucks for a bottle of rum the size of your arm. You know, it was great times. Um, and how ran long, that. How long were you down there? It's not four years almost. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then the final bell for me was kind of like when Chavez wanted all those international oil companies to switch over to majority Petavesa ownership. So they pushed out Exxon immediately. They're just like, no, we're going home. Have fun. Um, Conoco negotiated for a little while and I was working primarily on the Petrozawata field which was a Conoco field they all got on the same plane back to Houston on May 7th and is it predominantly onshore or offshore there that's all onshore it's all onshore it's, okay. it's the heavy heavy oil stuff right okay so all that expertise I had gotten in Canadian heavy oil applied itself really well to the Canadian Baja Dornoco stuff which is three to five thousand centipoys almost bitumen in the reservoir so that's why the multilaterals work so good. If you drill a single well, you might get a couple hundred barrels out of it. It's like a single horizontal lateral. Just the fact that it's thicker? Yeah, you need, you need some gravity drainage to get that stuff to even flow into your well bore. So mm. they would do a, like a fishbone-style multilateral well with up to 18 different branches off of it, and they'd get two or 3,000 barrels a day. So Conoco was all in on this stuff. It, and it was really cool. They had, that's probably... Three or four hundred multilateral junctions in that field. How much was it to drill these wells? Oh, back in those days, it yeah. was probably with the multilateral hardware, yeah. uh, like five or six million bucks. But it was cheaper because they wouldn't complete the laterals; they just directional drill them. Yeah, and then the main junctions would be tied back with a cemented junction. That's my part in the process. But the laterals were just open hole. And uh, yeah, is that, is that standard for the heavy oils? Or was there, was it, yeah. There, okay. You can still do that in Canada to a large degree. It's still a lot of the cold production, not the thermal stuff. Yeah. It has to be cold production, but they do a lot of, we call those level one multilaterals where you just, you know, turn the directional drilling pH over, BHA over to the side and then push out 
create a new hole. <laughs> it may collapse, it may not, but it still connects up these different, you know, reservoir compartments and it makes i've never sense. heard of that that's awesome no oh no. that's good fun yeah i'm not an engineer so <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so then i had to leave when everybody else left i was probably one of the last expats in matarin venezuela because i was pretty committed and if it weren't for hugo chavez i would probably still be there um you know having a great time but all the international companies pulled out and a few months later I landed here in Houston, Texas. So is the, really quickly, a side tangent, is the, is the, the state of the industry there in Venezuela the same as it was when you left? Oh, yeah. It was fun to be there, right? Because you'd get these PDVSA guys that were nominated by, it became a political organization, PDVSA, Petróleos de Venezuela is the, what that means, state oil company. They'd come in and say, we're going to grow this business to 5 million barrels a day. At the time, there were about 3.5. And it looked feasible for them to get to 5 million barrels a day in 2006, 2007. Uh, until it just became inhospitable to international oil companies. And so they all pulled out. And then uh, oil pricing was still strong up until what about? The global housing crisis probably did that man right mm -hmm. the global recession 2008 9 10 because then there was less demand for oil and and chavez was taking all their funds and diverting it into social projects and you know free heating oil for the poor folks in the northeast of the united states right and subsidizing cuba's energy and they just didn't have any cash after that stopped investing in the infrastructure and i want to say 2000 10 and it's just been a slow motion downward death spiral since then to where like when i was there it was 3.5 million barrels a day for the country um up until the sanctions came off venezuela a couple of months ago they were down to a few hundred thousand barrels per day of oil experts exports even with chevron can now sell oil again because mm -hmm. they got that sanction removed or waived from the state department they're only able to get it up to about 700,000 barrels a day yeah, and that's mostly coming from the light oil fields, Jake. The heavy oil stuff is all shut in. So have they have they started to play nice in in recent years to get the the Exxon's and the other guys to come back in? Well, they're trying. They're to, trying to, but, but it was like, I, well, we've already been bit by this once. Yeah, once bitten, twice shy. So the condition for these sanctions being waived was for Maduro, Chavez's successor, to host free and fair elections, right? Has that panned out? I, Did he I do that? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> There's, yeah, nobody voted. And the only way he could get the few people to vote that did vote was by threatening to annex, you know, two-thirds of Guyana's landmass. Mm. So I don't know if you know the relationship between Venezuela and Guyana. Not really. Guyana is the no, they're global hotspot. Pretty close to each other. Yeah, we, were, we yeah. actually went and toured uh, Exxon's campus with some friends who were uh, on the Guyana project. And so that was just like the talk of the, talk of the town. and. Yeah, I was down in Guyana in October for a workshop with a lot of the Exxon guys oh, there. Wow. Yeah. It's tiny. There's yeah. more people in, you know, well, ten times as many people in Houston as there is in Guyana. That's crazy. It's only seven hundred thousand. We're like oh, seven wow. million here, right? Yeah. Uh, did I do That's the math crazy. right? hundred times. Anyway. Uh yeah, a lot of those oil fields, offshore oil fields in Guyana, you know, if you were to draw a line straight off the coast, mm -hmm. they would belong, they would fall under the Zonda de Esquiba which based on an 1899 treaty with, treaty with the Spanish and the British belongs to Guyana. 
the vote that Maduro did on the weekend, just on Sunday, this past weekend, was one of the questions, referendum questions, was shall we recognize that treaty? No or no? <laughs> yes or no? But clearly everybody voted, to, you know, for in the spirit of nationalism to reclaim the Zona Esquiba, which will never happen because, you know, it's probably pretty well predicted by the U.S. Navy. <laughs> Given all the Exxon mobile infrastructure off the coast yeah. there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if the sanctions are going to stay waived, but they are for the time being, which makes Chevron quite happy because they've been investing in that country for 40 or 50 years and uh, haven't been able to get anything out of it for past. Well, the Trump administration put the sanctions in place probably in 2018. I feel like there's so much there is so much opportunity internationally, but like the, the the top of mind risk is always like the political risk of these 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 governments that are not stable, leaders that are not stable. You can get kicked out at any point in time. A couple of years ago there was the whole Sitco five here in the Woodlands and the whole bribery thing that went down and it was just like if you look at it, it was like they were kind of my understanding doing business the way the business is done down there and in order to make things happen there could have been some things that were kind of obviously like crying across the lines but um the u.s justice department came down there very heavily and uh i know one of the guys who was involved in the investigation on that and it's it's interesting, oh, interesting. It's now, they're, now they're all in prison um yeah. so it's like <laughs> i don't know it doesn't really like make you want to go outside the the borders and just invest a ton of cash into something no it's very discouraging to foreign direct investment yeah. right and that's what they need at this point they do not have the cash to rebuild the Venezuelan oil and gas industry. I have a huge community of Venezuelan people that I'm friends and family with, right? And they're all waiting for their chance to go back. They're loyal to the country and to the industry. Talented people. They had a fantastic reservoir engineering program for the, the folks that came out of Petavesa in the 80s and 90s. So they're good engineers, good geologists. They all want to go back and fix it. Yeah but they can't do it without money and who's going to invest. Well, the only one who's still there playing ball is, is Chevron at this point and Shell to a tiny degree, but everybody else is like, no, we're, we're out of here. And, and I need to correct a statement that I said earlier. The Hamaka field is one of the traditional Chevron heavy oil fields that is still operating. Um, I don't know to what extent, what production levels. Yeah, it's going to be a long road for them to get back to where they were and they have the world's largest oil reserves. If you jiggle around the recovery factors for extra heavy oil, which Chavez did. <laughs> um, and they, they say the last drop of oil this world ever consumes will probably come out of Venezuela. The problem is, what the, what's the timeline for that? How long are yeah. we going to be interested in extra heavy oil from a you know, South American dictatorship? What, what, is the, what is the estimate on reserves in Guyana? You know, in Guyana, I don't uh, know because they're still doing discovery and appraisal and a lot of Guyana stuff, right? But they're up to what twenty eight discoveries, and they announce a new one every month. And it's or so. all offshore, right? All offshore, yeah. yeah. Which is safe, right? You can't yeah. get uh, taken over as easily yeah. if you're <laughs> offshore, right? Much harder, <laughs> much harder. But you know, this whole theme of oh, come on in, American oil company, invest in our country, build up a great oil field. Ecuador is a classic example, right? Texaco built that oil industry. And once it looks good enough to where the president at the time says, oh, that's lovely. I'll be having that. Um, good luck. See you later. Uh, you know, they just write off the investment and go to international business court and spend 20 years trying to get a settlement, which is what Texaco had to do, right? 
No, when 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 Conoco left that Petrozawata field, they wrote off fourteen billion in quarter in Q four. Fourteen billion. That's wild. It's a uh, huge number. Yes, they had already made a profit on that investment. Yeah. I'm quite sure, but <laughs> they had a lot of investing. All right, so you leave the the wonderful land of, of Venezuela. You land back in Houston. What what was next? Yeah, back in Houston, got married, started a family, and then, um, uh, yeah, Houston wasn't my destination of choice, but it is, in my opinion, the global capital of oil and gas. So it I is was happy to be here. Yeah, and now of all kinds of energy, as I learned from Fuse, this is going to be the hub for. It really, hydrogen, it really is. Uh, CO two, all that stuff is going to happen here. I yeah. love that. Um, but no, um, I, I, I liked Houston and Halliburton offered me an opportunity then to go to the Middle East, which I had still had strong connections to from before. So they sent me to Dubai in 2010. I only hear amazing things about Dubai. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. 10 years ago, this was, it was, oh, it was, it was it still was, early then. It was still early. There was still, yeah. there was still empty sand were too early. <laughs> sections between the giant malls, yeah. right? But it was nice. It still had a kind of a local feel. You could still, I went back last year in February for meetings and it's Manhattan. You can't move. There's people on top of you. It's stressful. Like the old Dubai was kind of relaxed and I miss that. Um, but that was a good place to live, especially at that point in time. You know, the kids were little and they didn't, had a nanny. Things you, you don't yeah. typically do living in the US. So it was great. Um, but at that point in time, I was... 10 or 12 years with Halliburton and uh it was kind of at a fork in my career so keep doing this they were offering me a position as like a business development manager in Kuwait and I was interested right but I thought you know if I go into that level of Halliburton management it's the profit loss pressure cooker every month and you're only as good as your latest thinking forecast and that's your life you know so I took a bit of a a sabbatical and went to work for um, Saudi Ramco mm. in 2012. Were you in Saudi at the time or were you here in the States? That was a funny thing. Uh, that was in, so I hired on while I was still in Dubai okay. and Halliburton's like, oh, wish you well. Thank you. Shout out to Halliburton. They never treated me bad ever because you're going to work for an operator. They're, yeah. they're going to treat you well on the way out. Um, so they put me in Saudi for five or six months just to get trained, quote unquote. But then the idea behind the group that hired me, which was the um, upstream R&D group, um, XPEC ARC, Research and Development, 300 scientists and engineers developing new technology, uh, very academic focused, to be honest, very um, you know, patentable IP focused. Um, they wanted to have, uh, it makes no sense that they hired a Canadian to do this, but they, uh, a person in Scotland to work as a liaison out of a satellite research center and scout the North Sea for new technologies. Uh, it was cool as shit, Jake. <laughs> I'm not lying. So, so they move you from Saudi to, to Aberdeen. To, so you just hung out in Aberdeen. What was like your, what was your day to day? Were you, cause you said technology is kind of specifically. Yeah. Uh, upstream. So I was with the production technology team within okay. the XPEC orc organization which has its own building in Saudi. Like they are, you know, very associated with University of uh, King Fahd and all that stuff. Um, but I was in a new office that they'd built out for us by myself for a while because I was the first one they'd hired for this role. And I just started talking to uh, 
folks in Scotland who were doing acoustic telemetry for downhole te- uh, data. Mm-hmm. Started talking to folks who were doing, um, you know, uh, downhole sensing, uh, reservoir resistivity and pressure measurements distributed through the reservoir. Um, and then one of the things that really caught my interest was autonomous ICDs. So when I say ICDs, inflow control device is kind of the broadest category. And then you can narrow that down into autonomous ICDs as a narrower category. Those are the ones that an ICD chokes your well in a planned way, but it's just a fixed nozzle. You're basically putting a hole in your pipe that gives you the flow rates that you want at a certain drawdown pressure. Autonomous is the ones are the ones that can change based on what you're producing. That caught my interest in 2013. So how long were you with Saudi Ramco? Uh, as good as that job was, uh, a year and a half was all I lasted. Uh, even though they had me on this wonderful compensation package to live in the northeast of Scotland. Um, it was a little bit hard to implement change in an organization as big as Saudi Aramco. You know, I was getting great technology ideas. I was taking them back to the kingdom and saying, guys, look at this. This could make a difference. And Yeah, okay, that's a great idea. Um, there wasn't enough engagement between XPEC Arc and the assets. And I've said mm. that before and I'll say it again. So what was the point of the position? Uh, just just harvesting new ideas and technology Um, yeah but if there's no like utilization of the yeah like the ideas that you find i'd say i could have got those ideas pushed through but it would have taken me longer than i was willing to wait (laughs) because i i'm impatient i want to you know here's the idea let's de-risk it let's plan a job let's do a test and let's drill a well and that takes do you think that's purely just the nature of the size of the company and so you think you would anticipate you probably have the same problems at a, a Halliburton or, or on, on the operator side Exxon or Chevron or is that more exclusive to, to Saudi Ramco? Uh, the way I put this typically is I wanted to work for an operator. The world's largest NOC was a poor choice mm. <laughs> because they are the slowest ones to implement change. Very progressive now, now more than they were 10 years ago. I'll give them credit for that. Very much more progressive and quick adopters but uh it's a it's a very large crude container that needs to be steered you know miles and miles before it docks at port so it was hard to get things through but i'll tell you that the personal reason for leaving scotland was the weather <laughs> and my scottish friends will hate me for saying this but aberdeen gets like one day of sunshine a year i couldn't do it i couldn't do it and my wife is venezuelan bro mm. she's like yeah didn't know what to do didn't know how to dress this it was torture so we wanted to get back to houston anyway yeah so what i did was i found the coolest aicd company to work with at the time and get myself a position back here in houston and that was in 2014. and so have you been is that was the inflow that you landed with or was, was another company at first no i had met with inflow multiple times but they were that was their startup phase yeah. they were just three guys working out of the garage very promising tech i fell in love with this tech because of them not because of the company I went to work with, mm-hmm. which is uh, which was Tendek at the time, now Taka. Um, but they had the most commercial product. They were in the troll field in Norway in a big way, controlling gas. So that's that's an interesting field where they drill this thin oil rim underneath a massive gas cap. So when you have gas breakthrough in those wells, you shut the well in. And those are subsea offshore wells. You don't want to shut those in. Those yeah. are $200 million wells. Right, so they really needed a solution for gas control in that field. So Tendeka was blowing and going in that space. 
they brought me in at the Houston office and I populated it out throughout the Western Hemisphere because no one was talking about autonomous ICDs in the Western Hemisphere. So I got to run the first ones in Canada, the first ones in Alaska, the first ones in Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador, and then later on in Texas. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a fun journey for sure. So you could be probably one of the world's most experienced peoples in this technology. Thanks for saying that. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, of the ones that are still doing it yeah maybe but um that's there's lots more to do there's a lot more to do it's still early days for this technology what do you, i mean you've spent a lot of time you said it's been what 10 years now kind of working with these kinds of companies what it what excites you about this finding different reservoirs um so my boss just had me do a, a study of all the unconventional basins in the u.s because they have no idea norway none right <laughs> They just know that like the Permian makes a lot of water. Say, okay, let me do, I'll compare the Bakken to the Permian to the Haynesville. Cause I know these reservoirs, basins, not as well as the frackers do, but I spent a little bit of time in frack. So I, I know a little bit um, and trying to find ones that where the viscosity sensitive device can actually work. And it's not all of them, right? We can't go out to your West Texas well and shut off all your water. Sorry. Uh, the light tight oil that comes out of a unconventional shale or sandy shale reservoir has a pretty low viscosity. And we have to have the oil thicker than the water. Otherwise, the device does the opposite, mm -hmm. right? So the only unconventional play where it really works, in my view, is the Bakken. But we just did a 2L Bakken pilot project where we increased their oil rate. I mean, it was watered out, so it was pretty, pretty bad, rod pump. It was only making, you know, six barrels a day. And we brought that up to 30 barrels a day. That's good. Uh, yeah. It's not nothing. And it's a little pilot project demonstrating proof of concept. So we were really thrilled about that. We just put that case study up on our, our website. Is that the paper that you're writing? That's a different paper, no. but okay. yeah. Okay. We'll publish that hopefully next year because this is hot off the presses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The one I'm writing right now is about uh, carbonates. Naturally fractured carbonates. I don't even know what that means. You know, limestone, <laughs> okay. right? But uh, instead of fracking it, like we're prone to do in this industry, in the U.S. particular, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you frack it, frack it, frack it. But uh, some of these reservoirs have natural fractures. So that's Austin chalk, that's Saratoga chalk. And up in Montana, uh, it's the uh, Mission Canyon reservoir of the Cedar Creek Anticline. So a uh, small independent, mid-sized independent came to me a couple years ago and said, these wells are making way too much water. We know there's more oil in the fractures, but once a, a natural fracture, you know, from geological stresses, once it waters out in a carbonate, the water dissolves the walls of the fracture and the fracture gets wider and wider and wider until it's a super highway for water and they can't get any of the remaining oil out of these fractures. So we put some AICV completions in there uh, last fall, about a year ago today. And so we don't know where the fractures are. We don't have a way of logging those. Like, so we'll just divide this well up into 150 foot compartments. I picked that number, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see what we get. And lo and behold, we cut their water production down by about half in both wells. And, um, uh, and one well, it was pretty played out. It was a retrofit. The well had already produced for like three or four years. So it was kind of, yeah, yeah. had already made 200,000 barrels. And we kept it on at the same oil rate with less water. Great. 
technical success, but no incremental oil. That's how we want to promote this technology is incremental oil. You'll make more oil. Yeah. Yeah, less water and less gas, but you can also get more oil. So that was kind of a wash, but the new well we drilled had a 5,000 foot lateral with 30 compartments, swell packers and, and valves. And uh, yeah, we got all the, the water decline, like the oil rate decline curves for every well in the field. And this is by far the best well they've ever drilled. Head and shoulders above every pier in the entire play. And it still makes about half as much water as an offset well. But the real kicker for this paper is that uh, the uh, Matt McConnell, shout out, buddy. He calculated that the volume of original oil in place, reservoir engineers call that OOIP, based on the structural enclosure of each of these wells. So there, it's a faulted reservoir. So you can say this is one side, this is the other, this is the thickness. Therefore, I have this volume of rock times porosity. That's your OOIP. And do you only get that if you have the two faults on either side? Yeah, it okay. only works in structural traps. You okay. couldn't do this for unconventionals. Yeah. Right? Um, and he said, comparing the offset wells to our AICV well, in the first 300 days, our AICV completion had recovered 8% of the OOIP in that time period. In the same time period for all the offset wells, the best, well, say, let's say the average was about 4%. So you doubled the average. Doubled the average. What does that mean? The first documented his case history in the world of accelerated oil recovery from any reservoir based on inflow control technology. So we're pretty excited about the paper. That is right? exciting. Because everybody talks about it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah get your oil out of the ground faster. That, can you prove it? No. It's just a theory, <laughs> right? We proved it. So, yeah, that'll be a good one. That's super exciting. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> See if anybody reads it. <laughs> Probably get more uh, people on this podcast paying attention. Well, if you guys are listening, I, you, want, you want the paper, the reach paper out. Reach out to We'll be to published at the Canadian Energy Technology Conference in March in Calgary. Perfect. Man, this has been super exciting. I've actually learned a lot. Um, where can people go to find out more about you? You're on LinkedIn. You're on Collide as well. I know that. Yep. Um, where, where can they go to learn more about you or the company? Oh, inflowcontrol.org. No, sorry. I got that wrong. Inflowcontrol.no for Norway. Right? Okay. We would love to have the inflowcontrol.com yeah. domain name, but we don't. Um, that's a different organization related, but not our company. Um, inflowcontrol.no uh, has videos, um, case studies, you name it, papers galore. There's probably 30 published papers now in this space. Um, but I would say even better than the website is our YouTube channel. Yeah. Our YouTube channel has all the uh, produced videos that we have to just show really quickly and simply how the valve works because I can't explain it with words as well as I can visually. And then there's actually a lecture series on there, like step one, you know, horizontal well. Step two, inflow control, ICDs in a horizontal well. Step three, autonomous inflow control. And it goes through I think, nine two minute videos that are fun to watch on, you know, what state of the art is in this type of inflow control space which you didn't know existed until today <laughs> that's interesting yeah if, if uh i'll get the link from you we'll actually upload all those into sure. the, the search right. engine as well so they're discoverable so if you guys are subscribers of collide pro you search anything around inflow control that's right you'll find those videos if you're not and you want a free trial reach out to me we'll get you guys up steven this has been great it's been a lot of fun i've learned a lot 
a lot about Venezuela. So let's do it again sometime. Oh, yeah? We yeah. can do a follow-up uh, yeah. anytime you want. Let's do it. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, man. Come, 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 come.